We try and do one of these meetings every year. If you are a newcomer here today and this is the first time you've ever been, on one hand, I apologize. On the other hand, I say, well, this will be good for you. You're going to get to know exactly how the inner workings of NRCC go. But don't be fooled. This is not how Sundays typically go. This is a different Sunday. All right? So our agenda this morning is going to be this. We're going to start off with some history. Uh, some values, some priorities here at NRCC. Then we're going to go on to what our 2014 work has been and what still needs to be done. Then we're going to talk about how we're going to decide what our 2015 work will be. And so let me begin with number one, our history and values and priorities by showing you this roadmap. And I show this to you because I first sketched this roadmap on a piece of scratch paper for the church council in 20, what was that? I guess it was 2006. That was the first time. And we've been following this roadmap ever since then. And so I want you to know what it's about. I want you to know it so that you can recognize the milestones as we cross them. So that's it. That's the roadmap. Now let me describe it for you in some detail. As you know, if you've read the NRCC history section on our website, I came here with my family from Los Angeles to Raleigh to plant NRCC in 1995. We came from a megachurch that was, one, at the time, one of the top five churches in the nation. And being a top five church had certain advantages, and it gave, us a, gave me a vantage point for some very helpful insights into, way, into the ways that we Americans do church. And among those insights was the freedom that I felt not to think that if we were just a better church, then our problems would be solved. And the reason I had the freedom not to think that was because I had been at the better church. These were good people, and it was good leadership, and it was well-organized ministries, and it was great preaching, it was fabulous music, there were programs for everybody. This was the better church. And I was the college minister at that church, and in that system, the college minister kind of was in a little backwater eddy over here, not necessarily part of this organizational juggernaut that kept this whole enterprise going. And so consequently, less of my time was spent organizing things, which is what most of the staff did, and most of my time was spent in direct contact with people in the church. And from that perspective, it didn't take much observation to realize that there was something wrong something bad wrong. I picked up that terminology when I got here to the South. <laughs> and I kept thinking to myself, if this spiritual thing that we call church is a thing, then it ought to be awakening us to something different. Our souls ought to be healing better than they are. We ought to be more resilient in the face of suffering. We ought to be better developing the character that is required to make our relationships work, to make our marriages work, to make our kids healthy. We ought to be seeing a bigger picture each year instead of retreading a very narrowing every year vision, and that wasn't happening. And so I was nothing if not outspoken, and so I would say all those things there in that church context and I felt like the boy in the fable about the emperor's clothes. I was saying these things, but nobody seemed to be listening. 
Very, they were very nice to me. They very loved me. They still love me to this day. But everybody thought that I was just a young hothead full of piss and vinegar. I heard that term more than once. And everybody thought that I was just lacking in the wisdom that comes with seasoning. And there was good reason for them to think that because, goodness sakes, look at us. We had 10,000 people coming through the door on any given week. We had a budget that rivaled a small city. We had a staff of 150 people. People were filling out cards every week to become Christians. All the metrics by which one measures success in the American church life were being met. And so, Doug, what are you talking about? Things are going along just fine. And the basic response was, Doug, we know you're a good guy, but we've got a machine to run here. And eventually they asked me kindly and lovingly because they gave us a year of funding to come off and start NRCC but they asked me to go, and so I arrived here loved. And I'm still loved by that group of people. But I also arrived discontented and perplexed, somewhat baffled. Certainly my vision about what to do was clouded because all the things that I knew to do about church, if I did them, I knew where they would take us because I'd already been there. And I knew that if we go there, we will end up there and we can't end up there. And so consequently, I didn't know what to do. Now, in our current lesson, the one that we're interrupting to do this community meeting today, uh, we're talking about listening to the interior nudges of the Spirit of God, the still, small voice. And I did that. Well, I always do that. But I particularly did that in the beginning stages of starting a church because this was a new endeavor, and I didn't know what in the world we were supposed to do. The only thing that I ever felt an interior peace about was no. Don't do that. Don't do that. And don't do that. All the things that I was good at, don't do that. All the things you need to do in order to plant a church, don't do that. All the stuff that gathers people and raises a budget and helps the church become self-supporting, yeah, don't do that. And so... You can see on the chart from 1995 to 2006, we didn't. We didn't do that. We didn't do all the things you need to do to plant a church. We didn't tell people we were here. We didn't organize ourselves. We didn't do very much at all. Robin's husband took a look at us during those early years, and he summed up pretty much what we were, and he says, yeah, I know you guys. You're the do-nothing church, (laughs) and that's pretty accurate. We were the do-nothing church. That's pretty much the way that it was. But what we did do turned out to be fundamentally life-changing for me and for many others. And that is, we asked the fundamental question, what does it mean to be Christian? We asked the fundamental question, what does it mean to be a church? And we took all the things that we thought we knew, and we set them aside for a moment, and we said, why do people gather on Sundays? Why do we sing songs? Why do we tell the Christian story the way that we do? Why do we do that? And we wondered about that and questioned that. And in addition to that, we learned to love one another. We learned to share our lives with one another in an open and authentic way. And for many of us, we had to learn to doubt our faith with one another, but at the same time hold it in tension and hold on to it. And we talked. 
We talked about how the Christian church had hurt us. We swore to ourselves that we would never perpetuate that in this community. And we learned to be quiet. We learned to listen to the interior nudges. We used a phrase a lot during those years, listen carefully and obey tenaciously. Listen carefully, obey tenaciously. And we did that. We listened for the interior promptings because, to be honest, we didn't know what to do. So we were stumbling along in the dark, and the best we had were those interior nudges. Well, it turns out, that's not a bad place to be. So as we followed these limited whispers, these nudges, these promptings together, an image of church and what church meant began to emerge over those 10 years. What Christianity meant began to emerge into our hearts And it took some time, but things got clearer. Oh, this is what church means. Oh, that's what Christianity means. Oh, that's how we could tell the Christian story better way. Oh, that connects with our hearts. And that's how we could live this Christian life better. And with a handful of folks, very quickly in the first year, we grew to about 100, and then we kind of fluctuated between 100 and 125 for the next nine years. And then we could have stayed that way, because we settled into a rhythm, a very comfortable rhythm, and I did think we would. I thought we would stay that way for the rest of my life, a small experiment in Christian community, kind of on the backside of nowhere. I didn't, well, I mean, now that I know Raleigh, it's not nowhere, but at the time when I came here, I, I'd never heard of Raleigh. <laughs> when we were driving across the country, not knowing anything about the city, Denise said, do you think they take credit cards there? <laughs> <laughs> So we could have stayed here in this very comfortable setting of learning and experiencing this profoundly transformative experience of Christian community. And it was precious and wonderful and deep and good, and it was something that I knew had life and vitality to it. But then in 2006, I began to experience another set of those interior nudges. You know the story I told last week about the guy who was reading the stories of Jesus and the words jumped off the page at him. I had an experience kind of like that, only it wasn't the words jumping off the page to me. It was people that I would see in our city jumping off the page at me. It was people in our town. I would walk through the grocery store and people would jump off the page into my heart. I would drive by houses and I'd see kid paraphernalia spread all over the front yard and people would jump off of the page at me. And the way it came to me was this irrational but palpable sense of love for people that I didn't know. I talk to people. It's what I do in my life. And I often speak to people at difficult junctions in their lives. So I know a lot about what happens in lives. I know a lot about what happens in homes. And I know the good stuff, and I know the bad stuff, and I know the emotional stuff, and I know the relational stuff. And I would see these people and I would have a pretty good idea about what was going on in their lives, even though I didn't know them, and I would love them. Irrational love, palpable love. And I would also know that if they became part of our community, experiencing what we were discovering, it means to be Christian, that their lives that happen in their homes would be better. And I knew that what would be going on in their context would be better. The growth that we were experiencing, the interior transformation that we were experiencing, would make their lives better as well, just like it was making 
our lives better. But as soon as I had that thought, there came another, which was kind of a mixture of feelings. There was sadness, and there was disappointment, and a sense of paralysis, because I knew that there was a downside to having been the do-nothing church. It pretty much assured that we would stay right around 100 to 125, because the things that we were experiencing were, were being experienced in a catch-as-catch-can way, which you can do when you have 60 adults and 40 kids. You can do that because you gather, and on a Sunday, you can decide right then, hey, let's all go to the park and have a picnic. We'll pick up some food. You can do things that happen in a small way that you can't do when you hit above a certain number, and that number tends to be right around 100. There's a reason why there's so many churches in our nation that are 100 or below. It's because there's a dynamic involved to move beyond that that requires a tremendous amount of work, and I knew we hadn't done that work, and I knew we had stayed away from it because organization was kind of a dirty word to us because it smacks of organized religion, and organized religion had hurt us so deeply that we were in no hurry to go back there, so we liked being the do-nothing church because it felt safe. We also knew that something was happening inside of us and among us that was profound and wonderful, and we thought if we got any bigger, it would go away, and we didn't want that to go away. And so that would have been fine, except that I would keep walking on the greenways and I would see people. And I'd keep going to the grocery store and I'd keep seeing people and I'd keep having this thing that would come up inside of my heart, this irrational love for people I didn't know. And that was going on. So during these years, we were figuring it out. So by late 2006, I began to talk to people in our community about opening our hearts and opening our doors to people in the city. And I said, to do that, we're going to need some organization. We're going to need some simple systems in place. We need to organize just enough to be able to invite people in and have them be able to experience the things that we are experiencing without any organization because there will be more of them at that point and that will require a certain amount of communication, a certain amount of organization. And I said we would need just a few simple things in place. We would need reliable ministries for our children and for our youth. We would need to make Sundays accessible to newcomers. We would need to fix up our facility, because right now our facility is simple. Back then it was kind of a mess. And we would need systems for our money. And so I would invite, invite the people in our community to come help me put organization in place and to invite outsiders into our community, into our hearts, and they would quite kindly tell me to go fly a kite. <laughs> And so I'd wait a few months, and I would try again, and I would say, hey, I think we should open our hearts and our doors to the people in our community, and they would very kindly tell me to go jump in a lake. And so I'd wait a few months, and I would try again. And that's how strong our aversion to organized religion was. So by the time we got to late 2007, uh, after a year of that, I decided to start on my own. And I would ask myself at the end of every year, what we could potentially get done toward these objectives of having just enough organization in place to invite people into our community. And I put it in a folder, 
And I would visit that folder every Tuesday, and I would think, what could we move forward just a little bit this week? And I would just keep going back to that folder every Tuesday, and we would do that. I would work a little bit, and I would ask some people to come and help me with the stuff that was in my folder on Tuesdays. I just wouldn't tell them what we were doing it for. I would just say, would you help me with this? And people were willing to come help me, but they just weren't willing to do the overarching thing. And we had to be very careful what we went to because there weren't many dollars and there weren't many hours available. But we began to get just a little bit organized. And about that time, we got organized enough to begin to let people know we were here. And so once that rudimentary organization was in place, uh, we redid our website. The News and Observer did a small article on this oddball church in town, and the oddballs started to show up. And uh, <clears throat> we redid our website so that the oddballs would feel welcome, and also so that we could warn the traditional folks that they might not like it when they came here. And we began to grow. And knowing what I know about organizational dynamics and uh, church organizations in particular, I did not want our objective to become a megachurch. I'd done megachurch before. The lacking element I'd come to believe was ownership in the community. So when the community stops owning the community, something profound happens that changes the spirituality of the people who participate in the community. And we as Americans have become acclimated to, habituated to, professional service organizations where we show up and it is done for us. We become consumers, recipients of religious goods and services. And when that happens, something profoundly changes in our hearts. And so we determined that we couldn't let that happen. And so, we wanted to make sure that we stayed a community-owned church. And for that to happen, for that value to be intact, we determined that there had to be limits to how large we could grow as a community. And so we determined way back in 2007 never to build a space that was larger than we could do what are you thinking in, which turns out to be about 100 to 125 people. And so this is about as big a group as you can do what are you thinking in. And so we started thinking, all right, if we do that twice on Sundays and if we maybe add a Saturday night service or a Sunday night service, whichever one, and then we add all the kids that go with that, well, that number works out to be about 400. So we determined that we would grow to become a church of about 400. But to do that, we had to begin to create systems. I determined in the last service that might be a little small. I don't know if you can read that or not, but I'll tell you what it's going to say in a moment. And so from 2007 to 2014, we began to work on building the systems that would allow people to come to our church and experience what we had experienced during those early years. And after we dismiss, you should go to Michelle and you should go to Robin and you should kiss them both on the cheek because they were instrumental in helping us make this transition that I kept pushing for happening. Both of them will tell you that they would rather take a sharp stick and put it in their eye than they would manage processes and manage systems. They don't like that kind of thing. Robin's gift has to do with exploring the interior life. That's why she's gravitated to the Enneagram and Michelle's strengths go toward teaching the theories behind organizational development. That's what she loves to do, but they both jumped in to help do the kinds of things that they really don't like to do to help us do these kinds of things. And Mike and Patrick, they jumped in, they took over the facility, and they managed the facility, and they still do it to this day. Several folks jumped in. 
And we were not very good at it. <clears throat> and so we bumped into each other quite a bit. We created conflicts among people who loved one another, and we took two steps forward, and we fell one step back. None of us were administratively wired, it seems, me the least of all, and so we stumbled forward, and we stumbled forward slowly. Now, I know stuff. I can't do stuff, but I know stuff, and so I charted out the systems that need to be in place if you're going to make the transition from being a small church to being a mid-sized church. And even though I couldn't figure out how to do it, I could tell people, this is what needs to be done, and so that each year I would create a what-are-we-going-to-do-next-year chart based on what needs to be done, what hasn't yet been put into place. And so I would create all the systems that need to exist, and we would put them on a chart. And if you're going to invite more than 100 people, you've got to have these things in. And so it was that list of things. We worked on administrative systems and music systems and kids systems, communication systems, web systems, community care groups. And boy, did we move at a snail's pace. And I wanted to hurry. I wanted to hurry first because it's in my temperament. I just love closure. If it's on a to-do list, I can't rest until it's lined out, and I want to have that thing done. And so the second reason I was hurrying is because, in my mind, this was the most unpleasant kind of work, and I was laboring under the illusion that once we did it, we wouldn't have to do it anymore. And nothing if not courageous, I said, all right, if we've got to do this ugly thing, let's roll up our sleeves and get to work and get it done. It deluded me that this work is always going to be here. It's never going to go away. And so I just pushed and pushed to get it done. And while I was doing that, Robin would say, Doug, slow down. Doug, it's going to take as long as it takes. She gave me an image from the, the, the Hebrew people when they were in Egypt saying, moving at the pace of the women and the children and the, and the cows and the goats. You, if you're going to move a group, it's just going to take time. It was not... She didn't use these words, but if you saw on our Facebook group, Amanda posted a little uh, uh, saying from an an African saying that said, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go long, go together. And that's what Robin would say to me. We want to go long, we need to go together. And so we went slow, really slow. And I wish we'd gone fast, but the wisdom of going slow didn't appear until later. Because I would not have known how strong a link there is between administrative systems and values and beliefs and a core narrative. I just didn't know that until I started to see us create systems without checking in with our narrative. Because there is a way to do administrative stuff that is linked to the basic belief systems you have. So, the way church does children's ministry is rooted in the Christian story we have. So we couldn't just buy a packaged curriculum off the shelf and begin to do that. We had to think individually about the children, about what we were learning at the moment. And by the way, what we were learning at the moment was changing all the time because we were telling and retelling and telling it better, going through this process. And the same is true of welcoming people. If you're going to welcome someone 
and you've got one belief system, you treat them one way when they come in the door. You want to make sure that they come in. You want to make sure that they get a card. You want to make sure that they find a seat. You want to make sure that they have a really positive experience because you want them to come back because you want their butts in the seats and you want to make sure they join the membership class. You want to make sure they do all that because we're building an enterprise here and we're trying to get the kingdom of God built. And if that stops being the way you frame reality, then you're going to meet them at the front door very differently. And so all the things that we knew from all the systems we'd been part of didn't apply. And so we had to go back to the most fundamental level and break apart all the functions and say, why are we doing what we're doing? And how does that match the narrative that is emerging within our heart? A quick example, if a community is not afraid of God, and we're working really hard to dismantle so much instinct around being afraid of God, Or if a a community is not trying to curry God's favor so that if we obey the commandments of the Lord, then we will be blessed in the city, and then we'll be blessed in the country, then we'll be blessed when we come in, and then we'll be blessed when we go out, come straight from Deuteronomy. And if we don't obey the commandments of the Lord, then we'll be cursed in the city, and we'll be cursed in the country, we'll be cursed when we go in, and we'll be cursed when we go out. If that's no longer the basic matrix by which we relate to God, I will tell you something that we learned from experience. You raise money very very differently. When people are currying God's favor, you use the scripture that says, if you give, it will be given unto you. Uh, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And we'll say, you want what God's blessing is? Give. There's a truth to that. There's something true about generosity, but that's not the truth that you focus on when you've got this narrative. Or if you've got the idea that you're afraid of God, you quote from Micah. Micah says, would you rob from God? You better not rob from God. Because God will be there to defend God's very self. And you don't use those things when you're talking about raising money in a different narrative, in a different framework. So how do you raise money? For the longest time, we didn't. <laughs> and then we got into debt, and then we were risking closing down as a community. And so we said, we've got to talk about it. How do we talk about raising money? And we begin to talk about owning the community. We begin to talk about the, the uh, interconnectedness that happens when people use their dollars as a currency for health. And we begin to talk about the things you now hear us talk about. So we take that and multiply it times 50, all the systems we began to have to recreate according to a different narrative. And it took about seven years, and I wouldn't say we're finished yet. We're still working on being organized enough to help people access the things that are strengths of our community without devolving into organized religion that has wounded so many of us. Now, just a little bit about the future, even though we're probably not going to get to it in our 2015 work, but this is the rest of the roadmap so you understand it. 400 makes for a very good community if we get just organized enough. But 400 people does not transform the city of Raleigh. There are a lot more than 400 people in our city. And so we said back in 2006, when I sketched it out, when we approached 300, and we're getting close to that, we're probably 250 on Sunday mornings, maybe 260, something like that. So we're close to that. When we get close to that, we're going to be able to afford to hire an administrator. And what that administrator will do is be able to take all of these hard-won systems and put them into a basic handbook 
an operating procedural process by which we can improve those systems, by which we can, uh, you know, Michelle's been talking to us about having a list of preferred vendors for a long time. If the heater breaks so we don't have to go out and reinvent, where do you get a heater repair person? You get the basic things down. Where do we get curriculum for our children? How do we take care of the hospitality? What are the training manuals we've put together for our group leaders? What are the things that we've done? Put those all into one place and keep improving them. And once that is in place, why use it simply for supporting this community, NRCC? Had that been in place when I arrived with my non-administrative but good at being a minister skill set, my Lord, we could have moved faster. (laughs) And so why don't we find some other endeavors that could use what we have learned and be a support to them as they get their stuff done? Because the the administrative things that we've put in place were hard won, and they've become a treasure. They are gold. And so, probably in our future is an intern program. Young men and young women who will lead the next generation of churches, maybe even ours, who will bring their creativity and their energy to telling the Christian narrative in a way that works in their generation, and we could invest our experience in supporting and strengthening them. The people who will lead NRCC, for an example, are probably 20 to 25 right now, because I will probably be here for 10 or 15 more years, because I'm I'm mid-50s right now, and so by the time I'm getting near my retirement, those people are 20 to 25. And having had some 20 to 25-year-old kids in my life, and having been a 20 to 25-year-old kid, I can say, no fault of theirs, they're just stupid. (laughs) And so... What we need to do is we need to invest in them now because eventually we're going to be depending upon them. So we need to teach them the ropes and we need to teach them the stories and we need to tell them what we've done for this last 10 years so that they can use that as the launching place when they begin to get smart about 5 or 10 years from now. And so that's in our future, probably not for 2015. But I wanted you to see the rest of the roadmap. Okay, next, I also want you to hear or rehear, if you've been here for a while, how we measure success. We measure success at NRCC by the experience of our people. We are not a success if all of you all learn the right stuff. We are not a success if all of you all meditate enough days in the week. We're not a success. If all of you get into groups and share your lives in a spiritual community, we're not a success if we serve the world with enough hours in any given month. No, we are a success when the people of our community experience the interior spirit of God. That's how we define success. The life of God that is in you and the life of God that is in me, that is the experience that we pursue that when we have, we define ourselves as a success. When we together taste what we have not tasted, see what we have not seen, live in ways that we have not lived, that's how we become a success. And so, those things that I just mentioned, we do promote them. We do promote the communal practices, the contemplative practices, the learning practices, the serving practices, but we do that 
Because for thousands of years, our tradition has found that when we do experience the, the, when we do integrate these things into our lifetime, into our lifestyles, that tends to promote the experience of the interior divine. So we work hard to help one another integrate these practices into the rhythm of our lives, but they are a means. They are not the end. The end is self-awareness. The end is self-disclosure. The end is interior transformation. The end is relationship healing. The end is soul awakening. The end is the healing of our wounds. The end is the strengthening of our virtue. The end is the things that happened when we experience the Spirit of God within us. That is the end. The circle is just the means to an end. But because it is a means to an end, we use it as the organizing matrix for our efforts. In other words, we want to make sure that our efforts focus on the communal practices, the contemplative, the learning, and the serving practices. So this becomes what we work toward. So as you'll see, we work really hard to create systems that help one another learn. Things like you see on the chart right there. For those that are listening online, the Sunday lessons, the Wednesday modules, the Indigram seminar, and the groups that come after it, our reading lists, our Financial Peace University, the book clubs, basically what you see in the announcements. We do the same to create space for us to serve together and to encourage one another to integrate the serving practices into our lives. Things like serving in our... Oops, sorry. Serving NRCC and serving WIN and the food bank and Haiti and individual service that you do in your life that we encourage. We do the same with the contemplative practices, with these kinds of things that show up on our calendar. And because we're working on this in 2014 and 2015, let me give you a little context around the communal practices. We think about the communal in this way. There is a normal human process by which people move toward deep uh, belonging. You're going to see, this is going to end up here at deep belonging. Let me show you the process by which people get there. People move toward deep belonging in a series of incremental steps, and it starts with something like public belonging. We see from a distance what a group looks like. We see their values. We see their beliefs. We see the way they live. We see their style. We see that, and we say, hey, I kind of belong there. That's a fit for me. I like that. So public belonging is the first stage of belonging. We try and create space for that on Sunday mornings. We try and be authentic. We try and be honest. I always ask, well, I don't always, but I try to ask newcomers, was your experience of our website the same as your experience on Sundays? And most people say, yeah, you know, it's, it seems like you're a pretty good match. So we're trying to make sure that people feel a sense of belonging in a way that happens in a public way, and that happens here on Sunday mornings. We need our music to reflect the way that we tell our story. And that's no easy thing because there's not a lot of music out there that say, well, God's kind of this way and kind of not that way, and there, let's sing a song. It just doesn't, doesn't lend itself to that. And we need uh, signs that show people where the bathroom is, and we need uh, welcoming systems in place that don't feel like a high-pressure sales job, but at the same time tell people where their kids need to go and where the bathrooms are. So if I was grading us on how we're doing in making public belonging accessible to people, I would give us about an 85 out of 100, a solid B. It's been better since George has come. He's been able to translate some of our values into musical things, and he really's uh, been nudging us toward hospitality. That's been good. And then people move into a stage of social belonging, where they make acquaintances, 
a place to be social, to learn somebody's name. It's difficult to learn someone's name sitting in rows on Sunday and then leaving right afterwards. So where are the non-threatening places where someone can come and learn a little bit about people? Maybe a book club would be an example, or a volunteering place together, or structured games at a picnic, and somewhere to begin to belong to NRCC in a social way. Now, if I was grading us on this one, I would probably give us about 45 out of 100, because newcomers still have a difficult time finding out how to find their way into social belonging. We're doing better than we were two years ago when we would give us 10 out of 100, so we're improved, that's good, but we're still not passing. (laughs) And so two years ago we had nothing, and now we have something, and we're going to finish that out. You'll see in a moment when we look at what's still to do on our 2015 work, our standing calendar, we're going to be working on that. Next year will be, this one of the areas we will be improving. We move on to personal belonging. This is the level of belonging where you get to know biographical information about other people, about their lives, maybe about their family members, maybe about uh, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses, what are the big events that have happened in their lives, what are the kinds of things that are important to them, where do they work, what kind of work do they do it, why do they do that kind of work. You get to know these kinds of things. And if social belonging is what you would share at work around the break table, then personal belonging is what you would share after work, perhaps over drinks. And this is where you would talk about more than just the biographical information. You would talk about what is good and what is bad, even what is ugly. But in that context, you would know that even after you share what's ugly, you would still be loved after that happened. That's what personal belonging is. Now, I will say that happens a lot at NRCC, but we don't have a system to help it happen. In other words, it happens a lot because we stand up here and we talk about this kind of thing all the time, and some folks, by hook or by crook, they just make that happen because it's kind of a cultural norm here. But there is no easy-to-follow path that says, welcome, newcomer, this is what's really important to us, and this is what's available. And if you want that too, you go here, and that's going to help you with this for a little while, and then you go here, and that's going to help you with this for a while, and then you will begin to experience those kinds of things. We don't have that in place. There's no clear path to invite people into the experience that is so important to us. So because of that lack of a clear pathway, I think I would give us there 45 out of 100 as well. So we're working on community groups. You've heard uh, Josh and Sarah talk about that in the, in the fall, that we want to create spaces for people to get together. And we had a meeting just recently. We said, well, maybe book clubs would help with that as well. Or I imagined maybe having a dinner groups or different kinds of ways where people could get together and get to know one another in that way, trying to create places for people to belong personally. We do better at deep belonging Because you can get involved in a growing edge group where you can learn the Enneagram and you can begin to develop a vocabulary of intentionality about self-awareness and self-disclosure. It's a lot of fun when we do that. It isn't heavy. It's very light-handed, but it's also very purposeful. It is saying we're getting together for the purpose of talking about how our souls function and becoming more aware about that. And uh, Robin has reported about a lot of those groups. There's a lot of laughter that happens in that context, but there's also a lot of deep understanding that comes about ourselves and about one another. So we do that pretty well. But it is a little intimidating. Um, the, The folks who have really kind of made NRCC work are this unusual configuration of personality that come here, 
check it out and say, hey, I think I could belong here, and bam, jump there. (laughs) And if you have that kind of personality, we are for you. (laughs) If you're normal, (laughs) and you would go from here to here, and then from here to here, and then from here to there, I'm sorry, we can't help you this year. (laughs) But 2015 is coming. So every year we get a little bit better at inviting people into intentional kinds of relationships of moving forward. So that's why we do the work that we do. We are trying to use this matrix of the four categories of practice in order to invite one another into this rhythm that we know is where people have historically experienced the awakening of divine life within their souls. So now let me give you a little bit about what's in many organizations called vision and values. Only we don't use that word because we have Michelle. And Michelle has told us we're going to talk about Russian nesting dolls. And if you know about Russian nesting dolls, they are uh, the dolls that when you open it up, there's another doll inside that's shaped the same way as the other one, just slightly smaller. And there's another one inside of that shaped slightly smaller. Well, these are our Russian nesting dolls. This is the shape of the values that drive why we do what we do. And so Russian nesting doll number one is what distinguishes NRCC. And if you've seen the sign that we put out in front whenever there's no event that's coming up for our little banner, it says, a Christian church for the quantum era. Now, we purposely chose that word, a Christian church for the quantum era, because nobody knows what it means. Because if we had said a Christian church for the postmodern era, everyone would have had a slot in their mind. Oh, I know what they're talking about. Or if we'd said, you know, the green beam, a few people would have known what that means. But we chose a word that's fuzzy so that we get to define it. We get to define what we mean by that. And so we spend a lot of time. You've heard on Sunday mornings us talking about what's happened in quantum mechanics. My goodness, there's a book that a very good author has written that you can get for only $15 that will explain to you all about what it means to be a Christian in the quantum era. So we realize that what that means for us is that we are not a church for everybody. Did I mention that? We are not a church for everybody. So there are some people for whom we are a great church, and those people tend to be in two categories. Folks who have been traditional Christians for whom the traditional Christian experience is no longer touching them where they are. In other words, their Christianity is unraveling, and they can't grow in or find the indwelling divine in the church of their childhood. And so we're a great place for those folks. And there are a lot of them. We're also good for people who live in this new worldview, the quantum worldview or the postmodern worldview, the green beam worldview. We're a great community for those folks if they're looking for an ancient tradition to help guide their spiritual journeys. We're a good place for those people too. So those uh, are the folks that we are inviting into our community, and those are the folks that we are tailoring our community in order to be able to embrace and care for. So the first nesting doll is um, what distinguishes NRCC. The second nesting doll is doing the right things in order to extend that invitation. So when we're making systems, we need to think, what are the right things that need systems to be made for? And it turns out that what being a healthy spiritual community for this unraveling traditional Christian people and spiritual not 
spiritual but not religious folks, what tends to be the right kinds of things for them fits into what we used to call our three core values, which are community, spirituality, or influence, or what you will see oftentimes as rethinking the Christian life or our current working the circle shorthand, which is the communal practices, the contemplative, the learning, and the serving practices, doing the right things, making sure that we focus on what needs to be done to create a healthy community. The next nesting doll would then would become doing things right. <clears throat> if these are the things that we're going to be working on, well, then how are we going to make sure that we do them well? And we have to make sure that we don't send unintended subtext messages that often happens when you're in church, things like we're building an empire here, so get on board, come help us because God will be happier with us. Or we can't teach our children with the unintended consequences of you have to earn God's favor, or God is slightly upset with you, not because we would say those words, we never would, it's just that when we tell this story, it's very, it's embedded right in the story. So we have to make sure that those things are important to us. If social belonging is important to us, because spiritual community is important to us, then we ought to create spaces on our calendar. We ought to spend money out of our budget in order to make social belonging accessible to people. And so those are our things. We want to make sure that all of our core values show up in our calendar and show up in our budgets. That's what this work was for. That's why we did all that stuff. Now let's take a moment. And let's admire how pithy and how concise and how clear that is. Say, oh, that's good. That is good. Now, here's what you don't know. That's 10 years of torturous pain and struggle trying to figure out what in the hell does it mean to be a Christian? I cannot figure this thing out. How do you do church? I don't know how to do church. This is a whole lot of unlearning. That just sounds so clever. That's a decade. That is a decade of pain in my life. And today we have a strategy. Look at us. <laughs> so the next nesting doll is to say, what shall we work on next year? Given what has happened here, what do we do next? And this is our annual exercise in planning next year's work. And what's different this time is that it's not just me doing it. Last year, I involved the church council. They've gotten on board with this now. And this year, I wrote it to all the folks that are kind of influencing one of our ministries or another. And I asked for their vantage point from their particular area in ministry. And you can get all of these pictures. Well, that's, hold on a second. That's when we do the work, obviously. If you go to our website, you will see under the who to talk to about this ministry page, there are a lot of folks. So I wrote all of these folks, and I wrote some others besides that have been involved in um, kind of shaping the ministries of our church. And here's what's really wonderful. There are people on the list to whom I emailed those questions. There are people, people. We have people. And so we have folks who have a sense of ownership of our community. We have folks who have a certain care about how this particular area of our community's health goes. We have people, people. This is big. And so I invited these folks into the process this year, an exercise in balancing what we would like to see happen in our community this year that would further bring us to a place of health and well-being as a community, balancing that with the resources that we have available. 
How many dollars do we think we'll have this year? How many volunteer hours do we think that we will have this year? Now, Scott does a really good job of making sure that our dollars are managed well, and we are working hard to uh, let you know how you could contribute hours. So our dollars and our hours, we're trying to do the, the systems the best that we can, but we don't have unlimited monies. And we aren't overflowing with volunteer hours. Sometimes because we're not organized well enough to ask, it's hard work to ask for help because you don't want to waste people's time when they show up. So you kind of have to be organized before you can even be organized enough to ask. And sometimes it's just because we live in a society that is very time demanding. So each year we approach this question trying to balance what could we actually get done with the resources that we have available. And the reason that we want to have a church family meeting each year is to rehearse together why we do what we do. First, so that we all have a shared understanding of the community. This is one of the cornerstones of us making sure this is a community-owned community. That's why we do this every year. So you know why we're doing what we're doing. You know what we're doing, and that we are, you have the option then to come and do it together. That's why we have these meetings. It is your community, and you need to know what's happening. But also, if you want to get connected and are finding it difficult to do. And I know that that is one of our problems at NRCC here in 2014. It's difficult for people to know exactly how to get involved here. So on that belonging scale of moving into the social belonging, given that we do Sundays well, given that we do deep belonging, we don't do these middle parts well, the best thing that we have to offer to you right now, a snapshot of where we are today, is to say, if you want to get integrated at NRCC, the best thing we have to give to you is an invitation to volunteer. Because you will get to know people that way. You will find out what's going on at NRCC here, and you will get uh, integrated. That's the best thing we've got. Later on, we'll do better. But for now, this is what we've got. So if you want to get involved, that's the way to get involved. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about our work, what we've done in 2014, a little bit about what we might do in 2015, and then I'm going to ask you, would you like to be involved? And I'm going to tell you some of the ways that you might do that. So if you see something that matches your values, then you might want to jot it down. Here is what we did in 2014. And interestingly, you're going to find out most of these things could still use more people. These are places where there's already a leader, there's already a system in place, but we tend not to have a very deep bench at NRCC. We might have one person involved or two people involved, and it would be so much better if we had five people involved. So these are the places where that could happen. So this is what's happened in 2014 so far. Oh, by the way, this is where you go. If you want to find these people and you forget everything I said today, you go to our website right here and you say who to talk to. That will tell you. All right, so here's what we did in 2014. We improved our Sunday hospitality, coffee and snacks, and some newcomer help. We, kept our lo- we keep our lobby literature stocked. Thank you to Angie and her girls. She brings those cute little girls, and they look at the lobby every Sunday, and they say, is there anything missing? And if there is, they go to the computer, they print it, they cut it, they put it in. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We have six sa- annual social events. Still to come are our 12 informal events. We'll talk about that in a moment. We have designed and executed some values training for our community groups, and that's huge because if someone does want to lead a community group, we have taken 10 years of experience. We've kind of distilled it down into something that they can access, and so we can do that. 
We've expanded our growing edge groups, and Robin has trained a bunch of new group leaders, so we have more spots available for you to be involved in a growing edge group if you would like to. And we started a depression Facebook group, which has had a great deal of participation with Ginger. Those are the communal practices we've worked on this year. Our contemplative practices, we didn't do much new because we did a lot of work on that last year, and so we just kind of kept the systems we had last year going. Our learning practices, we annualized the Enneagram seminar and the groups. We integrated our first Sunday lunches, the tough questions issue. We updated and annotated our online reading lists. We've expanded self-awareness and self-disclosure beyond the conflict process so that we're looking at that as a way of just helping people understand the growth journey. We've made uh, Financial Peace University an ongoing module. Thank you to Riley and Jackie for taking that over from Scott. And our serving practices, we've made serving NRCC more accessible. There's still more to do with that. You're going to see a lot of that happening in just a moment. We've expanded WIN, and we've raised some funds for Haiti orphans. And then also our community care team, we improved our database software, and we are in and out process. And if you see John, who usually sits over here with Amy, give him a kiss, because he started that with ones and zeros. He didn't buy a module or a package or that. I mean, he just, he wrote that stuff. And it's just incredibly tailor-made for us. Uh, we've improved our visitor contact email. If you're a newcomer, you hopefully got one of those. We are transitioning at this moment to non-Doug contact, which means in the past we were small enough, I would just pick up the phone or send an email and say, how are you doing? And I realized, yeah, there's just too many of you now. I can't do that. So we need to still fill that function of just asking after people's well-being, but do it without Doug doing it. Our communication systems, we've... <laughs> So we just admire the fact that we had a bulletin today. And when was the last time we didn't have a bulletin? If the Internet's up at the church, we have a bulletin. And the PowerPoint gets consistent. We've updated the family webpage so that it works for the teams and systems. If you want to make an announcement, there's a one-stop shopping place to go to do that. We bought enough wireless mics for the worship team to use, and Doug's mic wasn't on this list year. That's why we got the crummy one. That's why we do that. <laughs> this is the crummy crackly one. <laughs> We gave a facelift to the teen room. No more dungeon for the teens. That's worked out very well. And it is only September. 2014 isn't over. We're going to continue working on the community care group uh, team, the community groups, and some get-to-know-people events as we begin to bring our calendar team together in the fall. And then some more improvements to the Sunday communications. That's been our 2014 work. Now, if you saw anything there you would like to write down on your paper, you just write it down on your paper. Go ahead. Take a moment. Wanted to see the previous list? We can do that. <clears throat> All right. Our 2015 work, the general themes, <clears throat> there's a lot left over on our communal practices from last year, so that's going to be a relatively high focus. Contemplative practices, we did not give much attention to it last year, so that's going to be a bit higher focus than it was last year. Our learning practices got a lot of attention last year, so we're probably not going to create any new systems in 2015. And our serving practices, what we want to focus on is more consciousness raising than we did last year. We raised dollars for Haiti last year. Now we want to raise understanding because the question came up around Haiti, why are we raising money for faraway places when there are needs here? And one of the things that I want to do is raise consciousness as to why. I'm hoping to be able to figure out a quick way to get you access to a book written by Jared Diamond called Collapse that looks at some of the history behind the colonial effect on Haiti that's different than what happened to the Dominican Republic. 
Republic, both on the same island. One of them is just totally devoid. The other one is an economy that could emerge, in, uh, emerge into a first world economy very soon. And this one is not going to do that. And it has a lot to do with what happened to the soil. And to ask people to take care of that without understanding the soil dynamics is just uh, not going to happen. So outside intervention will need to happen in Haiti where it doesn't need to happen in other places. And I want us to understand some of the consciousness behind how we help wisely in the world. So we're going to work on that this year or next year. Of the emails that I've received back so far, I'm still waiting on one or two of them. I talked, I think, I talked with Ideal about some one idea and I think there was somebody else that were pending on those. But the ones that I've already received are developing family rituals for a new paradigm. We, you notice we don't do baby dedications very well or baby baptisms very well or we don't have a puberty ritual when kids move into uh, eighth grade and we don't have anything when they go to school. And that's because all of those things that you just get by opening up the common book of prayer, yeah, that's not really going to work. We have to kind of rethink and rejigger and figure out how that's going to happen. So we're thinking that we want uh, family rituals. We also need to develop some church rituals for this new paradigm. In other words, how do we take communion? How do we do baptism? How do we handle sickness and prayers for sickness? And how do we appoint elders? How does that happen? And what is the process by which we do that? We can't, again, just go to the shelf and pull down the way church has done that for the last 500 years. Our community care, we need to be better at asking after one another's well-being. And this is the part where we're transitioning away from Doug, who's been doing that for a long time. And we started that last year, and there were so many other things that got first that hopefully this fall we'll be working on that, and this will probably roll into next year. As we were thinking about family rituals, we realized that sexual activity and sexual engagement has moved much, much younger. Uh, 10 years old, 11 years old, uh, kids are already being uh, some version of sexually active. How do we teach our children about sexuality? When do we do it? How do we do it? How do we involve the parents? How do we support parents? That's come on the list. Community groups, the next phase of moving forward into community groups, that will be part of our 2015 work. The potential of book clubs are there and then renewing our contemplative practices. Those are things that we're currently considering. That's what's on our list. Now, Scott will be working on our 2015 budget. Hey, we're doing pretty well. Scott will be working on our 2015 budget in the next month or two, taking our, making sure that our values, working the circle, the communal, spiritual, all those kinds of things, are being reflected not only in our calendar, but also in our budget. So if you're one of the team leaders that I emailed about your perspective and your vantage point, you need to get that reply done by this week. This is the week. These next seven days are the ones in which we are going to give Scott that information so he can begin to work on a budget for us. And if you would like to weigh in on the process as part of the community, then remember that uh, picture I showed you, these people? Oh boy, this was an endeavor. These folks... You might want to go talk to those folks because if you go talk to those folks and tell them what your idea is, then we would like to hear that. Um, here's what you need to know in, before you share that idea. There will be an immediate question that follows up on your suggestion. And the question is, how much would you like to be involved in that process? And would you like to help lead that process? And would you like to own that process? And even if you do, we're not even sure we'll do it yet because you would take up volunteer resources. And is that one of our things for this year? But we would very much like to hear the process and get it into the mix and being filtered and being heard. So if you're going to do that, this is the week to do it because that will inform what goes to the council. Then the council will determine what our final list of things we're going to work on in 2015 
2015 is, that will then translate into a budget, and then that's what we'll be working on. Now, I'm imagining as we do that, somebody's saying, hey, if we're going to open our hearts to uh, and our doors to newcomers, we ought to do something about those double, double ugly bathrooms. <clears throat> well, we set aside $2,000 to do the bathrooms last year, and then our air conditioner broke. And so we decided bathrooms or hot. And we decided to go with uh, the dealing with the hot. So we may try that again next year. Or we may just decide that double ugly bathrooms is a mark of affection. And we decide we like them that way. So, all right. Let me recap. This is what we've done. Some history values that inform our priorities here at NRCC, what our 2014 work has been and what we've gotten done so far, and how it is we'll go about deciding what we're going to focus on on 2015. And now I want to invite you to put your hand to the plow. So get your papers in hand now. Are you ready? Here we go. I'm going to go through these areas. If, this, if you would like to get connected, as I said, this is the best place we have right now for you to get connected is it's volunteering. And so if you want to get to know some folks, this is the vehicle that we have for you right now. And all of these things I'm about to show you are shovel-ready. <laughs> Did you ever hear that term before? They are shovel-ready. In other words, there is somebody who's looking for help in this area. They are ready to go. Somebody who will call you and be involved with you on this. So, you ready? If you know something about web updating or if you'd be willing to learn, we've got two people involved in that. We could use seven people involved in that. Put down web updating. Write that down. If you would like to be involved in the PowerPoint of the bulletin team, we have a little design flair. We've got two people involved in that right now. We could use five people involved in that. If, are you writing that down? Should I need to take a little time? If you are a musician or a singer, you would like to audition with George, write down, musician or singer. If you, oh, please, God, someone be event planners. If you are an event planner or you would like to work on being an event planner, we're going to do six events, potlucks, picnics, retreats, that kind of stuff. If you would like to do all six of them, sign up for all six of them. If you would like to do one of the six this year, any iteration in between, you want to do two or three, just be involved. If you would like to be involved in a process with other people who were also involved in event planning but not over, you know, seeing the whole thing, put it down event planning. Small informal events. If you like to do stuff, if you like to go to concerts or if you like to find an open mic night and go see who's going to sing or if you like outings to a museum or such thing. And you could imagine inviting four to five or six or seven people to come with you and advertising on our Facebook, then write down small informal events. We want to try and at least do one of those a month to invite people to and it would just be advertised through our Facebook group. If you're an extrovert... We seem to have an inordinate number of introverts in our church. I don't understand how that happens, but we do. If you would like to help newcomers know what to do when they arrive, and if you're good at that kind of thing, shaking someone's hand and saying, let me tell you where your kids go. You're looking for the bathroom? I'll tell you where the bathroom is. If you would like to do that, write down extrovert. If you like working with others, in other words, you don't care what the work is, but you would just like to show up and work with someone and do some thing. Well, I bet we have things. Well, I know we have things. And you could show up and you could do the thing. And in the process, you would be standing next to someone else who's doing a thing. And then in the process, you would get to know the person who is doing the thing. If you would like to work with others, you don't care necessarily what the work is, we have places for that. I haven't checked with the council yet. I'm hoping this is, but it would be nice if I knew if someone did know how to do this. Are you good at woodworking? Because if you're good at woodworking, we've got a rolling table that we use to help check the kids in. I see the process of the coffee setup, and a long time ago we kind of had in mind that one of our things was going to be a rolling table out there for the coffee setup, and since that's becoming a thing, if you would know how to build one of those things and put it on wheels and make it look good, then let me know, and then I'll find out from the council if 
they would want to do that. Would you like to host in your apartment or in your house? If there is a group that is looking for space, maybe a book club or a uh, community group or some such thing, would you like to host it in your house? Would you like to organize a book club or organize a dinner group or organize a community group? That means you would figure out where it's going to meet and what it's going to do and what it's going to read, and you would invite the people. If you would like to help organize one of those kinds of places for people to get to know each other, write down, organize a group. That would do the trick. If you'd like to be on the research team, helping Doug, reading books and listening to podcasts and taking notes, put down research team. I think I've mentioned that the last couple of weeks. If you have a strange combination of both kindness and confidence, seems like a lot of kind people don't want to impose themselves on other people. So we're looking for kindness that's willing to impose yourself on someone else in order to extend your kindness. If you have that rare combination, we would really like to check in on the well-being of the people in our community. But here's the thing, you don't know them. And so the obstacle is, oh, we have lots and lots of kind people. We don't have kind people who are willing to nose themselves all up in somebody else's business to say, hey, how are you doing? So if you are that person and you've got that combination of both kindness and confidence, we would like you to put yourself out there and say, how are you doing? How are things going in your life? And how could we be as a community helping you? So put down kindness plus confidence. If you'd like to support a leader... We have leaders for our outreaches already. We have a leader for WIN, a leader for Food Bank, a leader for Haiti. You want to come alongside and support that leader. Just put down support a leader. If you would like to be a leader, we could do more things if we had more leaders. I've got five things in my head right now looking for a leader for. If you would like to be a leader, come and figure that out. If you'd like to help keep our records up to date, which means taking pictures and means corralling data cards and helping John with the input of the data, then you write down records up to date or data. Now, a warning about this one, we're going to have to check you out first. You know, we don't just let everybody work with our teens, but if, uh, you know, you're safe and you're you're not an axe murderer or a pedophile or some such thing, we'll find out all that. And then if you're good with teens and if you are kind and wise and caring, we would like to have some more folks involved in, uh, in caring for our teenagers and other. Anything else that hasn't been listed yet that you'd like to be involved in? All right, take a half a minute. Write down anything you saw. All right. I'm only two minutes over. In January, Scott's going to be presenting our 2015 budget. We're toying with a new idea, something that we haven't done in the past, and that is we tried it once, but the increase didn't come. In the past, we've never projected an increase in the budget. Here's what we're going to try and do this year. We're going to try and say... If this much money comes in, we could get this done. If this much money comes in, we could do this. So you're going to hear that as we approach our 2015 budget. So I'd like you now to be thinking about your place in NRCC and particularly how that bears out in respect to your dollars. Because it does turn out the dollars do impact how well we can do things that make for a healthier spiritual community. So be thinking about your dollars. All right. Lord, may we be an open-hearted, open-handed community. In Jesus' name, amen.